You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, you're all very welcome. Let me welcome uh, those of you who are in the room here with us in the Long Room Hub and uh, the people who are joining us online this evening. My name is Eve Patton and I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, uh, which is Trinity's Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities. And we are working uh, uh, at the moment with the Centre for Resistance Studies. And the Centre for Resistance Studies is a relatively recent phenomenon. It was inaugurated uh, during the pandemic. But even in that short lifetime, it has, I think, begun to reorient much of the research that we carry out and that we foster in the arts and humanities at Trinity. Uh, and not least has been the influence of this very exciting lecture series that the Centre has organised on literature and resistance. Uh, this is the first event of the new academic year in the Literature and Resistance series, and uh, we're absolutely delighted to welcome Professor Anki Mukherjee for this event. Anki is Professor of English and World Literatures at Oxford. She is the author of several award-winning books, uh, including What is a Classic? Postcolonial Rewriting and the Invention of the Canon from 2014, uh, Aesthetic Hysteria, uh, The Great Neurosis in Victorian Melodrama and Contemporary Fiction from 2007. Edited collections include, with the late Laura Marcus, a Concise Companion to Psychoanalysis, Literature and Culture from 2015, uh, also after Lacan from 2018. And this evening we're going to be hearing a little bit about her latest book, Unseen City, The Psychic Lives of the Urban Poor, which was published by Cambridge in uh, 2021. And after talking a little bit about her, her work, uh, Anki is going to be in conversation with our colleague, Professor Ian Robertson, who will be known to many of you as uh, Professor Emeritus of Psychology here at Trinity. Uh, he is uh, founding director of Trinity's Institute of Neuroscience and co-director of the Global Brain Health Institute in Trinity, which uh, we're very fortunate in the Trinity Long Room Hub to work with in several ventures and enterprises. And of course, he is the author, as many of you will know, of numerous books, um, both academic and popular, those terms are not uh, a contradiction, um, uh, on neuroscience and on mental health. Uh, Unseen City, the Psychic Lives of the Urban Poor takes the concept of the unseen city, uh, visible but not seen, from Salman Rushdie. Uh, and it's prefaced by uh, an, in a very important and I think a very rigorous dissection of uh, a discourse of psychoanalytical science, which has in its language, its imagery and its method regularly othered uh, those who are, as the book suggests, not on the winning side of the colonial divide, and specifically the urban disenfranchised, the urban poor despite uh, Freud's own disquiet at the plight of those that he recognised as being too poor to afford therapy uh, in the early 20th century. Where this book takes us is on a journey through psychogeography, addressing the work of free clinics and mental health provision across six world cities, 
And it does this in part through real life encounter, but in part also through literature. And it was tremendously gratifying for me reading the book as a scholar of literature myself um, to see that Anki positions literary studies right at the very center of the radical humanities. Unseen City, she writes, claims back for literature its potent role in the histories of humanism, human rights justice, politics, and ethics. Literature, like psychoanalysis, can allow an imaginative rethinking of effective life outside the deformations of colonial legacies, the determinations of neoliberal governments and free market discourse, or the violent resurgence in recent times of globalized ethnic nationalisms. Well, for me, this endorsement goes right to the heart of what the Literature and Resistance series attempts to do. So let us now hear some more about such imaginative rethinking. Let me warmly welcome to talk to you, Anki Mukherjee. Thank you so much for that very fulsome introduction, Eve. Uh, I'm very grateful to Rosie Levin. Uh, I was very fortunate in a different lifetime to have taught her. And uh, she's as brilliant as she is nice. And I'm very glad to actually um, come back to the institution that is very proud and happy to have her as a faculty member. And thank you, uh, Eve. Uh, I'd also like to thank the Center for Resistance Studies and the Trinity Long Room Hub for hosting me as I excitedly talk about my new book. So what I thought I'd do in the next 30 minutes uh, or so is uh, sort of run you through some of the themes of the book and also give you some case studies from the London section of the, of the, of the book to kind of in a way uh, flesh out what my clinical engagement has been. I'm not a clinician, don't have a medical degree. Um, let me figure out how to, yeah, okay. The starting point of Unseen City is a historical phenomenon related to free clinics, improvisatory structures which try to mobilize an international mental health cooperative movement. Two months before the armistice at the 5th International Congress of Psychoanalysis in Budapest, Sigmund Freud famously declared that the poor man should have just as much right to assistance for his mind as he now has to the life-saving help offered by surgery. I'll leave the longer quote for you to read. Between 1918 and 1938, Freud's pronouncements on free clinics helped create a dozen health clinics from Zagreb to London. Uh, the, you can see the, some of the names of the clinics. So these were free clinics literally and metaphorically, as Beth Tanto states. They freed people of their destructive neuroses, and like the municipal schools and universities of Europe, they were free of charge. Ernest Jones, that's Ernest Jones, who was president of the British Psychoanalytical Society, was more conservative compared to the social democratic thinking of analysts across Europe in the aftermath of World War I. His ambivalence about institutions such as the Berlin Polyclinic was related to long-held beliefs about the medical foundation for effective psychoanalysis, which rendered the clinical authority of non-medical and lay analysts inauthentic. He found the spread of wild analysis alarming, Dante, Dante writes. 
This changed when a former patient of his, the American industrialist Prince Hopkins, donated 2,000 pounds to set up a clinic for the purposes of rendering psychoanalytic treatment available for, quote, patients of the poorer classes. The London Clinic of Psychoanalysis, you see the image there, opened on Freud's 70th birthday, May 6th, 1926, at 96 Gloucester Place in London, W1. In the first 10 years, over 600 people were seen by either Jones or Edward Goover. They were psychoanalytic cases, the treatment lasting between six months and four years. By 1929, all the members of the Psychoanalytical Society were nominated as clinic assistants required to treat one patient daily at the free clinic or an equivalent amount of service, and a position which was met with protests and attempts at variation of duty, such as members offering financial donations in lieu of service. During the Second World War, the clinic not only continued to function, it also served as an emergency center for psychological aid. I'll rush through the significant milestones of the next half century to the free clinic, becomes part of the newly minted National Health Service, or NHS, in 1948. Wilfred Bion uh, becomes the clinic director in 1953, revising the free clinic structure to introduce a means-tested sliding scale of payment. There's rising disquiet in the 60s and 70s about the clinic's function as a training institute for students. And finally, in 1990, <coughs> NHS stops its funding of the clinic. So the London Clinic of Psychoanalysis, the original and Freudian free clinic in London, is no longer free. I had to therefore look elsewhere, and I found a multi-group-based free psychotherapy program, which is a powerful model for innovative primary care mental health services and challenges its privileging of psychiatric disorder over nervous sequelae with confused etiologies. During my research for Unseen City, I collaborated for three years. Actually, it's uh, longer than that because I'm still talking to them and I'm uh, presenting uh, at the British Psychiatric uh, uh, Society conference this year with them. Uh, so three years with the Tavistock Trust, um, a not-for-profit, that's the Tavistock Trust behind this imposing statue of Sigmund Freud. It's not very far from Freud's last home where he died um, in Mersfield Gardens. Um, so it's a not-for-profit public benefit corporation which provides over half of all NHS mental health provision. The outpost of Tavistock that I worked with is titled PCPCS, the City and Hackney Primary Care Psychotherapy Consultation Service. And it's an innovative free mental health service that's provided by Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust. The PCPCS team, based in St. Leonard's Hospital in Hackney, supports general practitioners, GPs as we, are, we call them, throughout the London boroughs of City and Hackney in the management of patients with complex needs. And these complex needs include MUS, or medically unexplained symptoms, which the St. Leonard's team hospital, uh, the St. Leonard's hospital team prefer to call medically untold stories. And what might these be? So personality disorders, PTSD associated with childhood abuse, chronic or severe mental illness. Because of the complexity, the needs of patients supported by PCPCS do not map into existing structures of service provision. Historically, patients in this category have also tended to resist the mental health rubric because of social and cultural stigma. 
As a result, they remain within primary care for treatment as long as they are able, the intractability of their problems causing vexation to GPs and other practice staff. <clears throat> Julian Stern, head of psychiatry at the Tavistock and Portman Trust, points out that medical psychotherapy in the NHS has been predominantly psychoanalytic in orientation. I keep coming back to the question of psychoanalysis because I always imagine this, this sort of uh, irascible reader saying that this, your book is not about psychoanalysis at all, it's about different kinds of watered-down psychotherapy. So uh, this is my way of coming back, looping back to that question. So he says that medical psychotherapy in the NHS has been predominantly psychoanalytic until a little over a decade ago, almost all consultant psychiatrists in psychotherapy were trained in psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Psychotherapy in the public sector in the UK has been influenced by European psychoanalysis as well as US and Russia-led behaviorism. With the rise of cognitive behavioral therapy and briefer forms of therapy designed to lend themselves to supposedly scientific modes of assessing clinical effectiveness, psychotherapy departments with a more psychodynamic focus have been under substantial threat closing down or forced to gravitate to brief and manualized forms of therapy with a limited number of sessions. Stern points out that while psychoanalysis has continued to flourish in the UK and while psychotherapists in the public sector have psychoanalytic training, the profession itself has valorized individual, intense analytical, analytic work over giving back to the community. Consequently, practitioners trained in EBM or evidence-based medicine, such as CBT and briefer therapies, could be seen in the forefront of work with marginalized and impoverished groups. By the mid-1990s, CBT was the most widely used psychological therapy throughout NHS. Recent scholarship by Lixenring, Rabin, Klein, Coelan, etc., has not only valorized the efficacy of psychodynamic psychotherapy for complex mental disorders, but also challenged the hegemony of evidence-based medicine by demonstrating how the analytical tradition of psychoanalysis stands up to empirical interrogation. The PCPCS interventions reflect both the popularity of EBM and the concomitant resurgence of psychoanalytically informed models. Their methods are varied, including dynamic interpersonal therapy, mentalization-based therapy, CBT, supportive therapy, couple work, and even mindfulness. Stern points out that applied psychoanalytic and systemic concepts strongly influence the service model, not only in its implementation, but also in terms of its philosophical underpinnings. So what Stern and his co-authors mean by this is that the service approach is governed by principles such as the centrality of relationships in um, human development and mental health, the role of transference, the ability to tolerate uncertainty, and the focus on the person and their mental landscape. My collaboration with the Tavistock led me to, via a garden path, to a horticultural psychotherapy group run by two Turkish analysts, Ahmed Kaglar and Selçuk Berilgen. Berilgen is a psychodynamic psychotherapist, while Kaglar, who is also the community project group therapist, is an integrative psychotherapist. The participants in this group, which meets in St. Mary's Garden, Hackney, once weekly over the four seasons of the year, are Turkish. They've experienced at least one major trauma in their lives, domestic abuse, political torture, complex multiple loss, severe poverty and deprivation. They're all migrants, 
most of them victims of trafficking who had to endure perilous journeys to arrive at the United Kingdom 20 or 30 years ago. They have no formal education, many of them illiterate in their own language. Most of them were menial laborers in Turkey, unable to work now because of the onset of psychodynamic, psychosomatic presentations. <coughs> the Turkish-speaking group is Turkish, Kurdish, or Turkish Cypriot. Hackney is one of the top three London boroughs with the largest Turkish-born community. The Cypriots arrived in the 1930s as Commonwealth citizens. The Turkish migrants from the mainland came to London in the 1970s and 80s due to complex uh, economic and political reasons. The Kurds, a stateless nation, and one of the most persecuted ethnic minorities of our times, fled persecution in Turkey, Iran, and Iraq in the late 80s and early 90s. According to statistics provided by the DEMA report, a community-based survey conducted by the Social Policy Research Center at Middlesex University in 2013, Turkish and Kurdish adults in Hackney, Harangay, or Enfield were twice as likely to be unemployed than the general population. Unemployment rates, social housing levels, and the proportion of those never having worked or um, long-term unemployed could be twice as high as the citywide average. For Turkish-born people, the unemployment rate was 7% against 4% of the whole population. And the proportion of income support claimants, 21%, which is five times the national average of 4%. Of the Turkish-born who were employed, the average annual income was around 14,000 pounds against the national average of 21,000 pounds. I have more statistics about the female population in the Turkish community. We can come back to it later on. If, um, because most of the uh, participants in this horticultural group are women. The Turkish-speaking group therapist, Selçuk Berilgan, who was instrumental in designing the program's initial intervention, started by liaising with the community with GPs and referrers, as well as mental health professionals with experience in growing, uh, experience in working for, this is a category, difficult to reach populations. The program also contacted grow to grow a social enterprise that treated people with complex mental illness through horticulture and cooking. The term horticultural therapy describes gardening as well as the therapeutic approach, which combines group therapy with gardening. And in what follows, I will uh, focus on the activities of this group in St. Mary's garden, Secret Garden, which I shadowed, the community space to which the group moved in um, 2017. It started in Spitalfields City Farm. The regeneration of the plant world lends itself well to projects of psychic repair. As it says on the PCPCS website, the heat and toxicity of trauma are moderated. The genesis of horticultural psychotherapy is often thought to be Freudian, related to the misattributed quote, flowers have neither emotions nor conflicts. Uh, but the illusion of having made something happen is more Winnicottian in provenance. Winnicott, who was a pediatrician and a psychoanalyst, maintained that when there is a coincidence between something conjured up in the child's imagination and a real-life event, it fosters a sense of self-belief, which in turn prepares us for disappointments in later life. Moreover, in Through Pediatrics to Psychoanalysis, this is Winnicott's 1958 book, he introduced the idea of transitional space, the hyphenation between internal and external reality, which he described as a resting place for the individual, engaged in the perpetual human task of keeping inner and outer reality as separated yet 
interrelated. This square foot system of gardening makes it feel manageable while proximity to the earth and community um, through shared learning provides attachment security. The therapists posit the garden as a Wilcottian third space, an intermediate area of experiencing where a gradual differentiation between subjectivity and objectivity may commence. The program, as I have said, lasts for about 12 months. A day's gardening, pruning, propagating new plants, seed saving, designing flower beds, clearing flower beds once a week, is followed by a one-hour meeting over tea in the garden shed, where rules are revisited for newcomers and expectations of members reiterated as required. To mobilize the group mind, it's important to maintain regularity with the timing of the meetings, including time boundaries and breaks, the therapists insist. There's no formal agenda on the table and conversation is unrehearsed, free-flowing in the best of times. They're able to say in a group what individuals wouldn't be able to say, Kagla states. Harsher divisions of religion and culture are not apparent in the group, which is predicated on self-disclosure and interpersonal support. The seasonal variations aid the growth and maturation of relationships between strangers, many of whom are incapacitated by the violence of familiar relationships indoors. The therapists provide continuity between sessions by recalling old discussions and integrating the same with new and different outlooks. Every six months, the produce is cooked in the shed and feasted on. The therapists take pains to create a safe space for the participants. This, they say, is not simply a removal of threat, but it draws on unique cues in the environment, how we speak, how we look, how we listen. In the group setting, therefore, we aim to recognize the patient's autonomic state and regulate or co-regulate into their ventral vagal state, which is a safe, connected, social and resourceful state to work and communicate. Kagla says this. The therapists also borrow from the toolkit of emotion-focused and experiential psychodynamic therapies. <clears throat> the, the, the most recent report uh, mentions intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy, accelerated experiential dynamic psychotherapy, which work with triangles of conflicts, the relationship between anxiety, defense, and feelings, and also triangles of person, the relationship between analyst, analyzant, and people from the patient's past or present. In the group setting, these are deployed in interactive ways. The modalities demonstrate how defenses work and prevent us from connecting with our feelings. The price of not connecting is the psychosomatic or medically unexplained symptom. Emphasizing the experiential aspect of this mode of green therapy, Kagla says that the focus is always on the here, this, now, rather than the there, that, then. The feedback from patients in this group provides new insights into this form of ecotherapy. When asked if the group helped them change the way they had hoped, the eight patients interviewed reminisce about the panoply of symptoms that had brought them to PCPCS, fainting, nervous collapses, inability to get out of the house or have social interactions, neuralgic pain, separation anxiety, and debilitating codependence. I'm much better with my emotions, patient five says. While patient seven says, I express myself more comfortably. It did help me. I gained self-confidence, she says. More than half of the patients acknowledge the salutary effects of working in and as a collective. 
To see other people feels like family bonding, patient one states. While patient six states that the group has helped her self-sufficiency in that she no longer expects others to provide solutions for her problems. I realize that I always thought of other people in my life in order not to hurt them, but I was hurt. I started to think, patient six says, about my own needs. The responses to the questionnaire also reveal the ambivalences group psychotherapy may generate. Patient one says, it sometimes makes her feel worse, especially when she has flashbacks of the ch children's home where she grew up. Patient three complains that she can't exp express herself freely as this was a cultural group where she knew a few people. For the most part, however, mutual identifications among the members provide relief for feelings of isolation and estrangement. I noticed that some people are unwell, patient eight says, while patient three says that exposure to this group has brought her the realization that compared to her fellows, my situation is better than theirs. Patient seven reveals of the group configuration that I was introverted, I opened up more. Although her pains did not ease in the course of the therapy, patient seven says, the conversations in the group made me think about myself and value myself more. The group needs in relation to time-bound tasks made several patients feel that they had become organized and tidy in their emotion management. As patient five states, I'm now doing more things during the day. I get up early. I was all over the place before. I can cope with my pain better. Patient two compares the budding friendships in the group to working in the garden to grow crops. Growing things is very important, patient eight emphasizes echoing patient three, who said the garden produce we grow is meaningful. Patient eight, who had mentioned earlier in the questionnaire that her mind was confused, prone to forgetfulness, says, I grew vegetables for the first time, and now I grow things in my garden. To see the seeds we sow grow as vegetables gave me hope, says, says patient three, mentioning in the same breath that going out on her own once a week helped her self-esteem. Patient four states on the questionnaire that I was fearful with the idea of seeing a psychologist before. Speaking the same language was useful. Gardening, she says, made me feel I achieved something. It felt good. It affected my relationship with others. Thank you, Mr. Ahmed, patient six states. Ahmed is Ahmed Kegla. Uh, Mr. Ahmed provided a balanced group. He tries to be just and he approaches us with patience and care. The victim-victimizer binary in trauma groups is diffused through the movable feast of conversation, a word that comes up again and again. The role of the therapist, the answers of the questionnaire suggest, has been to contain the projections. I feel like the motherless Prince Harry, one of them had said. Chalk out action plans, work with dissociative defenses, and refocus the patient on the present day. Activate the isomorphic relationship between the divided self and the homogeneous yet non-identical group. In his interviews with me, Kagla talked about a different patient, E. She had been in therapy with seven different clinicians for as many years. One of them described her as a crying baby who cannot be pacified. He was so irascible that she had been banned from Turkish community groups, and there's a gamut of uh, pathological symptoms that she uh, presents, headache, dizziness, mood changes, restlessness, insomnia, depression, anxiety. He also talked constantly about her relationship troubles, her poor living conditions, and her inordinate anxiety about the health of her children. She feared in particular that her mother's psychiatric history would be transmitted to her children. He had confided in Kaglar about witnessing a murder, 
about the violent tribulations of the traffic journey to the UK and the protracted process through which she was granted asylum. It was a big effort for E to come to the garden, Kagla says. The transition wasn't smooth. She would mourn in Turkish or Kurdish, refuse to cook, pleading a headache, and the therapists were taken aback by the rage she seemed to incite in the otherwise docile group. He was eventually helped by the gardening project. The transitional space of the garden encouraged her to become more self-reflexive and confront traumatic memories of childhood abuse, preceding the brutalizing period of being trafficked and languishing in halfway houses as an asylum seeker. Surprisingly enough, her disruptive presence also had, the, had had the salutary effect of galvanizing the group and they found it in their hearts to reach out to her. She became capable of the projective identification Freud said was crucial to maintaining psychoanalysis, capable of transference in other words, and the therapists in turn were enabled to use this analytic tool to better treat the patient. Another study involves a man, S, age 48, who lives in a hostel in London. It's a rare case of failure in the history of PCPC as an Italian one of that. S was raised in foster homes after his mother died in his infancy. Kagla gathers from their conversations that he joined military service after emerging from foster care around age 20, but this is unverifiable. S is filthy, reeks of alcohol, and is hopeless in day-to-day -day interactions. He keeps saying, I'm puzzled. His relationship with the horticulture group is not easy, yet S is very anxious about severing ties with the group. Kagla decides to go to his hostel to check on him when he doesn't turn up to the meetings. The room is small and fetid with no personal mementos or pictures to be seen. S talks for the first time about his hallucinations. He sees a man by his bed. About the recurring pain from a hernia operation he had had some years ago and the time when he had to be hospitalized after a brutal attack on the streets. Ahmed arranges a caseworker, a Turkish woman S wants to, but this does not lead to any perceivable change in his behavior. S fails to turn up to the garden as before. His physical and psychic pain is so unprocessed, Ahmed Kagla writes in his case notes, that it has impacted his capacity to attach. The group feels like a family, as says, but the cookouts remind him of his wretched institutional life and its failure of family. S is too fragile, tormented by the fact that he was never adopted out of foster care and suffers belatedly from the discontinuities and disorganization of a life. He lacks the psychic resources to remember, let alone rearticulate. We can't do anything for him, Kagla states, because he's not doing anything for himself. S leaves group therapy shortly afterwards. He's technically an MUS, or medically unexplained symptoms case, Kagla says. Yet look, everything is explicable. The back pain, the lack of post-op aftercare, the world's withholding of love or care for S. Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps Score argues that trauma produces actual physiological changes, including a recalibration of the brain's alarm system, an increase in stress hormone activity, and alterations in the system that filters relevant information from irrelevant. In van der Kolk's non-dualist interpretation, the traumatized state is redefined as a psychoneurosis as well as a physioneurosis, wherein changes in the brain compromise the embodied feeling of being alive by the same token, the brain can be treated to better heal the body, its neuroplasticity utilized to make survivors feel more alive, more in control of the present. 
To restore the lost connection to their bodies, group members in St. Mary's Garden practice step-by-step -step skills to translate thinking to feeling and what Kapla terms subjective emotional presence. They are encouraged to be aware of any positive experiences and the sensations they may have. Kagla cites Bruce Ecker's opinion, so he's the originator of coherence therapy, that while new learning always creates new circuits, it is only when new learning also unwires old learning that transformational change can happen. Van de Kock, one of the world's foremost experts on traumatic stress, suggests three different pathways of trauma cure, the talking and reconnecting, taking medicines that shut down hyperactive alarm systems, and finally allowing the body to have experiences that viscerally contradict the immobilization and powerlessness associated with traumatic states or traumatized states. At the therapeutic nursery at St. Mary's Garden, the third most recuperative stage is associated with the fostering of an environmental imaginary and patterns of belonging to one's body and story that enable uh, re-inhabitation in private and public spheres. The group participants have almost no insight into possible links between their physical symptoms and early emotional traumas and losses. Both therapists write this in the case notes. In order to address this traumatic dissociation, the therapy includes psychoeducation about the body in the form of grounding exercises and mindfulness. It sensitively addresses the self-stigmatization that patients suffer from relatable to the internalization of prejudice, hopelessness, and a debilitating lack of confidence. One of the major tasks of the group work is to reverse this pattern and try to build resilience and capacity. As mentioned earlier, this is achieved primarily through creating a safe environment in the horticultural group, training the members in principles of nonviolent communication and constructive criticism. Kamala mentions the Turkish word sohbet, a deep intrapsychic conversation between therapist and group and between fellow members to explain the transformative connections this school of therapy aspires to. Sohbet is a form of social glue. Kakla cites a saying in Turkish that you can miss a, or postpone a ritual prayer, which has to be performed at certain intervals in the day, but you can't postpone a sohbet. Psychodynamic, emotion-focused, and experiential therapeutic methods are used in this form of group therapy to triangulate personal conflict, understand patterns of repression, and help patients become aware of inhibitions, avoidances, the devious workings of defenses and anxiety. Patients report their reliance on painkillers diminishing in the course of horticultural therapy. They're communicating better with family. They feel less bewildered in the face of symptoms. My last case study, Catlot presents the case study of a 57-year-old man, a shopkeeper with no record of mental illness, whose life takes a tragic turn following a road accident. His physical injury is not considered severe and he is discharged from hospital in a day. However, he deteriorates rapidly after this event, losing almost all his meager language skills. Withdrawn, forgetful, unable to leave the house, the only words he can muster are, I do not know. At first, the group coordinators are not sure he should join the gardening project, but they invite him anyway, and he agrees to come. As the weeks progress, he starts working actively in the gardening segment and begins to share stories of his life. He has small interactions with those around him. When I'm doing this, it means it's in the case notes, that exact language, and shows interest in their lives, asking questions from time to time. In six months, he's the most loved group member, Kaglar observes. 
Three months after the gardening cohort disbands, the therapists have a review meeting with the man who arrives with his wife. They're smiling and happy. He says that he's working with his son now, going out, carrying on with life. His relationships are more fulfilling and relaxed, says the man, who during his first assessment could not string together answers and, case notes say, was not able to clear his nose when he cried. What happened to this man during this time in the group may seem mysterious, Kagla tells me. The therapy in St. Mary's Garden is about a truth in parallax which restores functionality and capability in a world where historical truths kill. In Kagla's assessment, the care and compassion provided by the group in a safe and non-judgmental environment helped this man to connect to the healing potential which we all have. This is Kagla's reading as he returns to the quotidian endurance of a care-filled life. By talking about the topologies of historical trauma, Freud had made a crucial distinction between castration trauma and repression and traumatic neuroses associated with accident victim victims and war veterans, which manifest less in repression than in debilitating symptoms of repetition. In psych psychoanalytic uh, uh, literature, whether it is uh, Sigmund Freud's nactroglycite, deferred action, um, Laplanche's dual registers of traumatic relay between childish desires and adult lives, Pierre Janet's pathological automatisms through which fragments of un unintegrated memories surface, or Vandekoff's <coughs> discontinuous cognition, trauma seems to signify splitting, interruption, repetition, and the sliding of signification. Trauma analysis involves translational acts which connect self with the other, autobiography with history, repetition with restitution. Van de Kock highlights the shamanic role of the analyst in his own innovative treatment of PTSD. Sohbet, in my title, Sohbet in Kagla's usage, is one such translational act. By providing a deep, intimate, and meaningful connection with another human being, we hope that we have created more opportunities for Sohbet in their lives, Kagnar and Berilkin say. While Van de Kock finds narrative helping victims of trauma find the words to describe what has happened meaningful, he says it is not enough, usually. According to Van de Kock, the aim of trauma cure is not simply generating a narrative of belated experiencing, nor is it predicated on the temporal dyad of speaker and listener. The therapists have discussed here acquiesce to the sober realization that people trapped in chronic poverty need physical rehabilitation into collaborative and socially dialogic modes of living more than what we understand as narrative-oriented therapy. The chapter that this talk is drawn from is titled The Analyst as Muse of History in Disaster Zones. What I mean by muse of history is this treatment, which is not only interpretive, but fosters a fledgling sovereignty based on being and mattering in time. The group brings some organization to my life, like being on time, one of the participants had said in her responses to the questionnaire. I asked Kaglar about the adaptations to the program during the pandemic. This cohort of participants is now split into two groups, a yearly horticultural run facilitated by Kaglar and a 20-week psychotherapy group run by Beryl Galan. Sure, these are beginning to become in-person now. COVID-19 restrictions had stopped face-to-face -face treatment, so they were then offered group therapy on a video platform provided by the Tavistock. Until that time that their green-fingered charges could return to St. Mary's Garden, 
Selchuk and Berilgan send them kits with seeds and compost to continue gardening in the balconies of their flats or tiny back gardens. Thank you.